Good listeners, welcome back to the pod. It's Jazz here with John today. Uh, another another guest along with us. Uh, but before we introduce the guest, John, welcome back. The Jazz, good to be back, and uh, nice to chat to our, our guest today. Yeah, very excited. Um, for the listeners, we've got Roger Roger Montgomery back on the show today. Uh, it's been about about more than a year or so now when we last had Roger. Uh, because of COVID and all, obviously, everyone's been a little bit busy with their personal lives. Uh, but Roger, welcome back, buddy. Thanks. Great to be with you. Appreciate it, man. Always love to have uh, have you on the show. Your knowledge is incredible, obviously. Thank you. Um, Roger, interesting time. I was actually really, honestly, personally, I was looking forward to this conversation uh, with uh, all the stuff that's happening in the market. Um, and I was really keen to get started from a macro perspective of how mm-hmm. do you see the markets currently with Fed's hawkish turn and uh, Russia-Ukraine situation? Obviously, S&P 500 topped uh, towards the start of the year. Since then, the market's been a bit choppy uh, if you just look at the index. Um, what are your overall thoughts on the market, mate? So starting at the beginning of the year or at the end of last year, I expected a correction, um, but a good year, a positive year for equities at least. Um, That view fundamentally hasn't changed, but it's changing. So we now think that there's a possibility, slim, but a possibility we get persistent inflation with slowing economic growth. So that's not stagflation because we're not talking about negative economic growth. And, and let me just, so people don't run scared when we talk about negative economic growth. A recession is two negative quarters. You're talking about six months of the economy contracting and then starts growing again, right? But you know, so everyone panics about a recession and they panic because in the past, the markets reacted negatively to a recession. Now, I don't know that, and I'm talking about the global economy here and the US economy specifically, um, I don't believe that we're going to see a recession, but I do think that the Ukraine situation, which you referred to, has some long lasting implications for supply chains and for the prices of some of the key things that Russia and Ukraine produce. So for example, the car industry is enormously impacted by what's going on there. Um, There's pig iron that comes out out of Russia that's used for steel, there's aluminium, there's Neon, which is used in the lasers to etch um, micro microchips. There's the chips themselves. There's the wiring harnesses. 10 to 15% of wiring harnesses for cars come from the Ukraine. Um, and it's not easy to re- just simply find another source because you have to get a company to be able to make them. You have to find a manufacturer to make them. And then you have to train up the people at that manufacturing plant to make them. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really disruptive process having a war in a country like Ukraine. Um, There are companies that decided not to employ factories in Ukraine. They decide to only go with NATO countries, but most of the car manufacturers haven't had that luxury. They've had to get the the materials and the manufacturing done wherever they can get it done cheaply. Uh, And so that means they've gone into Ukraine, they've gone into some of these um, countries where uh, there is a risk of massive supply chain disruption So that means that prices, and it's a long-winded answer to your question, but that means that prices remain elevated for quite some time, input prices. 
And where companies, where companies can't pass that on, and there's a lot of companies that can't, where they can't pass that on, they're going to suffer margin compression uh, and their share prices are going to, um, they're going to see uh, some challenges. Now, the response to that, and I'm sure this will be one of your next questions, but the response to that is that in periods where interest rates rise, and if we do get persistent inflation, we are going to see interest rate rises. And I think it's fair to say the Fed is signalling that 50 bucks for the next two meetings are likely. So we're going to see interest rates in the US up a percent uh, in the next two months. Um, uh, that means PE compression. It always does. It always has. There's, without exception, results in PE compression. We've seen that. Uh, and that goes all the way back to nine, the 1970s. You know, whenever you've had interest rates go up, particularly two-year treasury yields, you've seen PEs contract. So we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of that. So investors now have to think about, okay, well, if PEs are contracting, I need to invest in businesses with E growing. They need the earnings growing to compensate for the PE contraction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to we'll definitely get back to the PE, but I just wanted to pick up on the inflation story for a bit, uh, Roger. Um, sure. I think I think you know Milton Friedman said that said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, um, which is to say that central banks create inflation and then it and then the economy directs where that inflation goes. It either goes into the energy sector or wherever. To to what extent do you think? The, the war in Ukraine and even COVID cr created the inflation or or it's just giving the inflation somewhere to go? Like, because we're seeing it in, in oil prices and, and so on. But is this is this a result of the response to COVID or is it, or is the inflation caused by the war, the war in Ukraine, would you say? I think the inflation is definitely demand-driven. So we saw COVID... Um, cause supply chains to be mothballed and a lot of the logistics, um, shipping, trucks, everything got mothballed, everything was shut down. But then at the same time, governments handed everyone money. So the, the system was shut down, the system was mothballed, but everyone was given cash to buy stuff. And so they did, you know, and everyone, the, the whole work from home thing was really shopping online from home. There wasn't a lot of work going on, I suspect, and a lot of people were shopping. And you saw that in everyone's numbers. They, you know, when companies came out and reported, particularly online retail, when they came out and reported what was going on during COVID, they were reporting record sales, you know, sales higher than even pre-COVID. So, um, so people shopped. That demand drove up, uh, the demand drove up the desire for goods that were in shorter supply, prices went up and that has an upstream and downstream effect. Uh, and we're still, we're still seeing the repercussions of that. And the, the Ukraine, um, you know, we just started to see some indicators of inflation peaking just before Russia invaded Ukraine. So for example, uh, days delivered in the United States was starting to come down. Backlog of, order, backlog of orders was starting to fall. Um, you know, the PMI, um, manufacturing PMI that was starting to come off again, you know, a leading indicator of inflation. So all these things were starting to tip over. And, and just as the Fed was really getting hawkish, it was potentially peak inflation. And then, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine and it sent everything back up again. So it delayed that, you know, it really did. So that was the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's a talk of interest rate rises and we've already seen uh, um, one rate rise by Fed start of this year. Um, when I look at the yield curve 
uh, Roger, 10 verse 2, 10 verse 3, they already either flattened and for some days they went negative as well. Right? Yep. Now, generally... And, uh, and on top of that, the, the break-even yield curve, the you know, tips, the tips yield curve, uh, the tips break-even yield curve is, is negative, mm -hmm. which the bond market saying, that's the bond market saying that inflation is a short-term phenomenon. Yeah, so that's where I was trying to get to that. Do we really see Fed uh, hiking those many rates or it's more of a... I don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some, some wacko people out there who are saying inflation is going to 17%, 15 to 17% in the United States, and there's a lot worse to come. And who knows, they could be right. You know, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> so, so, you know, those people could be right, but... Um, I would have thought that if you get a sufficient number of rate rises from the Fed, that slows the economy down, it slows demand down, it brings asset prices down, it brings the wealth effect down, and that has precisely the desired outcome, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, it, it, it eases inflationary pressures and you don't get to those insane levels of inflation that we've seen in the past. And then there's a lot of people out there who, who liken what we're seeing with oil to the 1970s, you know, the oil crisis. But the world is a lot less dependent on oil than it was back in the 70s. Um, you know, the US, for example, is probably two-thirds less dependent on oil as an economy um, mm -hmm. than it was back then. So even if the oil price does rise, it's not going to have the same impact uh, on manufacturing and, and uh, input costs. It certainly doesn't have an effect on the services sector. And the services sector, of course, is you know, mostly wages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the inflation numbers are. I think they are supposed to be released this week, if I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah, look, at, look for a long-term investor, it doesn't matter. It really, you really shouldn't be worried about the next inflation number or the next unemployment number. Those things don't matter to your investment strategy. What matters, and hopefully we'll come back to it, but is that the earnings of a company is growing, you know, and it's going to be substantially bigger in five, 10 or 20 years time than it is today. That's what you want. You want to buy a business that has competitive advantages, that can sustain a high rate of return on its incremental capital, has little debt, doesn't have much need for debt because it's got a great offer um, and it makes a lot of money, it's got great margins and it's gonna be a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. Buy those businesses today and even if the market comes off 20, 30, 40%, you'll still make a lot of money over 10 or 15 years. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's always the right strategy. Uh, don't time the market, it's, it's um... Timing in the market is, is, the, is the point here. It's definitely um, time in the market, provided you own high quality businesses. Mm -hmm. The longer you're invested in a poor quality business, the worse the outcome. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's time in the market, not timing the market. That's important, mm -hmm. provided you're in good quality businesses. Mm -hmm. So which sectors do you see uh, performing over the next few years or companies in particular, if you want to talk about where, where you see the growth happening over the next few years? I think businesses that have, you know, mega trend tailwinds behind them, structural growth companies, they're the ones that are going to be doing really, really well. Um, you know, you think about, I'm just thinking globally, think about a company like Adobe. Adobe's got a 43% return on equity. It's got $1.1 billion of net cash. It's got a 30%, you know, 30%, 40% margin. Um, and share prices off 37% since November last year because PEs have compressed. 
right? So PEs have contracted for all the reasons we talked about earlier, mostly interest rates going up or the expectation that they're going to go up. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you think you think about why it fell ten percent just a couple of weeks ago, on top of the thirty-seven percent, or well, contributing to the thirty-seven percent fall. It fell ten percent because it came out, gave a quarterly update um, for its first quarter results for this financial year. It's a U.S. company, so it has a calendar year as its financial year. Um, and they said, right, we're not selling, no new sales to Russia, and we're not connect, collecting on our subscriptions uh, to Russia. Now, for those who don't know, Adobe is a business that is basically the monopoly supplier of software to the creative industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so Photoshop and you know those sorts of software packages. Uh, and so the market sold them off. But the business is sound. It's going to be a lot bigger in 15, 20 years' time because it's going to continue doing what it does and there's more creatives and there's more people going online, more people building websites, more companies moving to the cloud. So, you know, it's going to be fine. Um, And so they're the sort of opportunities that I think are really, really good opportunities where you've got a company with a structural tailwind, uh, the business is sound, the business is very high quality, uh, and it comes across some temporary setback Mm-hmm. That causes the share price to drop significantly. That's where I think you're going to go, going to make a lot of money. In Australia, you know, another way, you know, a business that would fit the same mould. Um, you know, I was thinking of Unity Wireless. Unity Wireless is uh, the competitor to the NBN. Um, it was set up by Vaughan Bowen, who did really, really well um, out of you know other telecommunications companies. Uh, and uh, you know, this is really this is a day one investment for us in our small companies fund. Um, we like it because what they do is uh, essentially uh, in competing with the NBN, they are approached by a property developer. Property developer says, I've bought this 300 acre farm. I'm turning it into a suburb out in Western Sydney. I've got to put in roads. I've got to put in infrastructure. I need to put in the internet. I need to put in a network. Um, So uh, Unity Wireless says, we'll do that for you. Uh, You need to pay us to install it. And of course the, Um, the developer does, uh, and then Unity Wireless owns it. Mm. So we're paid to install it. Imagine negative CapEx, negative capital expenditure. You get paid to install your infrastructure. And then once you've installed it and houses started being built along those streets, they connect to the internet and you get a clip of every internet connection. Mm. Um, That's a brilliant business. Anyway, so we really like that business. Um, They've got about 20% market share compared to the NBN's 80%. But their market share is growing because they've got a higher share of new installations or new network um, rollout. So they were growing really, really quickly. And uh, you know, business like that definitely going to be a great business. It's a it's a critical infrastructure owns critical infrastructure, um, and it makes a, a lot of money. And the pipeline of its revenue is just going to keep growing. Anyway, they got a takeover offer at four dollars fifty. Then they got another takeover offer at five dollars and. Now there's a company who's got exclusive exclusive due diligence mm-hmm. um, at five dollars. But you know, if if there's an open, you know, if we think other bidders could enter, um, we think Macquarie Bank could come back, uh, and you know, the final bid could be you know in the sixes potentially. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, and when you look at um, some of the ratios, even after this correction that happened, uh, Roger, whether it's the Capshuler or the Buffet ratio, right? Um, like Buffet indicator itself um, is still 1.8 standard deviations higher than where it should be. Sure. Um, but, but it was that it was that before the market rallied 40%. Yeah. You know, it was, 
I've seen people talk about that Buffett ratio, which compares the GDP of the US to the market capitalization um, of the of the US stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, investors used it to call a correction in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And they got it wrong every time. I think it's a useless indicator. Um, I think it used Buffett used it once and it worked, you know, and I don't think it's worked since then. So, um, you know, if you, if you research previous forecasts using that, they've all been wrong. And the only reason we had a correction in 2020 was because of COVID. And it wasn't that ratio that called the correction. COVID mm. caused the correction. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's high. Yes, it's expensive. But um, it's been expensive for a long time. So, like I said earlier, you know, a, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this will be right. But the other one that is interesting is the Cape Schiller ratio. So that ratio has been expensive. What you have to remember, though, is 25% of the US market, 25% of the S&P 500, are five or six businesses, the quality of which we've never, ever seen before. You know, companies like Microsoft, Apple, Google, um, Amazon, Mm-hmm. You know, these are businesses that make up 25% of the S&P 500. They are superior businesses. They are incredible businesses. They generate rising return on equity as their equity grows. That's like having a bank account with a million dollars in it that earns 1% interest. But the bank says to you, when you get to 10 million, I'll give you 10% interest. And when you get to a billion, I'll give you 40% interest. Mm-hmm. That's those businesses. That's what they've done. They've grown their equity at a very, very fast rate, and their return on equity keeps going up as their equity grows. Mm-hmm. We never even contemplated businesses like that when you study businesses in graduate school. You know, you thought that a high rate of return on equity would be competed away. New entrants would come in and compete that return on equity down to a, you know, a, a more modest rate of return. So your return on equity, the company's generating 40%. Everyone enters that industry, brings down the price, and the ROE goes from 40% to 10 or 12 or 13%, you know, mid-teen percentage. But that hasn't happened for a lot of these businesses. They've got bigger and bigger and bigger, and their return on equity has gone up and up and up and up. They're precisely the sort of businesses that Buffett talked about. So they're driving 25% of the S&P 500. That's why, because they're such scarce, rare businesses and such high-quality businesses, the likes of which we've never seen before, that's why their PEs are justifiably higher. That's why the Cape Schiller ratio is high. Mm-hmm. Roger, to what extent are the valuations also partly a reflection of the increased trend of share buybacks um, as well as earnings? So th- th- that's been a, a real sort of theme over the last sort of five to 10 years um, where companies buy their own stock back and reduce that supply of shares on, on issue. Is that is that part of it? And does that sort of tie into the increasing meaninglessness of the the Buffett indicator? It's possible. Um, Just remember, if a company pays too much for its shares, even if it buys its own shares, if it pays too much, it's destroying intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So so that won't be sustainable. So yes, it could explain the pop in the PE, but it wouldn't be long-lasting. For it to be long-lasting, you need the sort of factors that I talked about earlier, sustainable competitive advantage, High rates of return on equity that are, you know that are um, persistent. Um, that's that's more important. And if you pay too much for your shares, you're destroying you're destroying equity per share. 
uh, and so uh, you uh, you end up having an offsetting effect on your intrinsic value. So that would bring down the ultimately would bring down the market if they were paying too much for it. Roger, there's a lot of talk about that we are in a commodities bull market. Sure. Um, what is your take on commodities overall over the next few years? Uh, obviously, we've seen some of the uh, commodities perform exceptionally well, probably because of the Russia-Ukraine situation. Nickel taking is a very uh, being picky nickel as an example. Uh, even gold reached back its all-time high. Um, what is what is your take on where commodities are headed for the next few years? I think some of the arguments for um, uh, sustained support for commodity prices are, are very very good. So if you think about um, uh, materials like you know iron ore, you know base metals, um, uh, then that complex, I can see a lot of good arguments for prices staying elevated. For example. Um, the, the social unrest around new mining is very, very high. You know, the, the environmental impact um, is very, very high. And so that means it's much harder to get a new mine approved. Mm -hmm. uh, it costs more now because of inflation. It costs more to develop a new mine. Um, companies that have the resources to actually build new mines aren't they're handing money back to shareholders you know as by the way of dividends and i'm thinking rio for example and bhp um and then you've got the whole esg um wave as well so you've got investors saying we're not willing to fund these mines we're not willing to support more mining and so you can see some really really compelling arguments for uh, iron ore prices, for example, to remain sustainably high and nickel and copper and all of those things. So I really like those arguments. I think there's some merit in those arguments, um, but it doesn't mean that commodities aren't volatile and very small shifts in supply, very small shifts in supply can really change the price of those commodities very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm no good at forecasting those changes in supply. There was back in 2011, I think, or 2010, I was very, very vocal about a crash in the iron ore price coming. Um, and you, you can see that on the blog and you can see it in the media. Um, you know, we, we were very, very vocal about that. But that was obvious. There was a massive supply response coming to those higher prices. Now, it's not as clear because I don't see a massive supply response to the higher prices, mm -hmm. which says that the higher prices might be sustained for mm -hmm. quite a bit longer. Yeah. Um, interesting that you mentioned ESG over there. That reminded me of something, which is carbon credits. Uh, yep. What is your take on carbon credits and uh, how do you see this sector growing over the next few years? I think it will grow. Um, I think there's a, the, you know, the, the momentum is behind it. The tipping point has passed. Mm -hmm. um, how, it, how ultimately we settle in terms of trading um, and in terms of, permitting um, the human impacts on the earth that are detrimental and and let's just let's not you know let's just not we can't escape the fact that humans have a detrimental impact on earth you can't escape that mm -hmm. right? so how we respond to that and how we price the impact we're having on earth that's the big question right i'll give you an example 
So you've got a company making milk containers, plastic milk containers, you know, and some massive proportion of them ends up in the ocean. Now, if, if I was manufacturing those milk containers, those plastic milk containers, and I set up a conveyor belt from my factory to Bondi Beach at the, you know, the heads there, and I just, just the, I made these bottles, they fell onto the conveyor belt and went straight into the ocean on that conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. That's all I did. That was my, that was my business. Just making container, containers that went into the ocean. I'd be shut down. I wouldn't even get started. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be allowed. Right? It would be an appalling abomination. Mm-hmm. And yet all we do is install in between that process on that conveyor belt. We install a consumer who uses it once for their milk and then it goes in the bin or it floats down the street and goes into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And by putting that consumer, by interposing the consumer in that process, suddenly the company doesn't have to pay anything for making those bottles. Mm-hmm. There's no cost. There's no environmental cost to the company or to the consumer for that bottle being manufactured. And that's wrong. And that's a failing of, of capitalism. And some way we need to work out how to deal with that. We haven't yet. Mm-hmm. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. I don't think carbon credit trading is necessarily the final solution. It's a solution on the step to the final solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that final solution looks like, but we haven't worked it out yet. So, but from investing perspective, you don't think it's at a point where you can uh, focus on that particular sector as an invest as an investment. I think it's really well. I think new technology. There's a lot of different technologies that purport to do the same thing, and that is reduce the human impact on Earth. Right. I don't know which is going to be the dominant technology. You know that. A lot of money is made in new technology and a lot of money is lost by companies who are disrupted by that new technology. But the biggest benefit is to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So you think about the invention of the television, the invention of the car, the invention of um, air transport, mass transport by air. You know, the car manufacturers collectively have lost billions of dollars. There's very few in the United States, if any, that weren't bailed out by private equity or by the government or didn't go broke mm-hmm. since the history of, since the car was invented, since Carl, since Carl Benz drove that first Mercedes Benz around the park in Germany and his wife stole it and then went to another town and bought some groceries. And that really was the, you know, that really was the light bulb moment. It was his wife, Berta, not Carl, that, uh, that really invented um, mobility. Uh, and so, um, so you think about, They've all gone broke. The car changed the world. Humans benefited, but they all went broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with air transport. Billions and billions and billions collectively have been lost mm-hmm. by airlines globally, and yet it changed the world. Consumers benefited. Television. There were 2,000. I think at one point there were something like 2,000 manufacturers of TVs in the United States. Today there are none. Mm-hmm. None. Humans benefited. Changed communication forever. But companies didn't make money. So technology, and particularly in the space you're referring to, you know, it, it, it's so difficult to know who's going to win and therefore so hard to make money out of. Mm-hmm. Um, but consumers will benefit because someone will win and it will be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been trying to study a fair bit of, about it 
from an investment perspective. But yeah, uh, it's. And what not... have you What have you found? What's your conclusion? Look, the 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 way I read it, um, and speaking to some of the people, it was more uh, the companies who actually. So it, it's kind of if you were looking from an investment perspective, it's more like the royalty companies um, uh, in the precious metal space and all. It's it's similar to that. There there will be royalty companies in the carbon credit space as well. Uh, well there's an exchange that's going to be listed in in Australia soon, um, which will um, which you know is the dominant exchange globally, um, and uh, it's going to IPO I think sometime this year, uh, perhaps before the middle of the year, uh, and um, and uh, that's one to keep an eye on. When, when you say exchange, what exchange are you talking about? In in what space? It's a carbon carbon exchange. Oh, carbon, right. Okay. Yeah. A, I didn't know that. Something new to me. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, something to be talked a bit more with a. Uh, it's called expansive. Expansive. Yep. Not expensive. Expansive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for letting that know. We'll surely dig into that. Um, now, when I spoke to you last, Roger, which is obviously a long time ago, your take on the crypto markets, or specifically talking uh, the top two Bitcoin and Ethereum was that it's all a fad or, and something else will show up. I'll uh, definitely change my tune on that. I, I read, I think, something somewhere. Uh, I wrote about it in the Australian during the course yeah, of the last Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, so what is your take now? I mean, obviously, we have seen over the last year or so a lot of the big names even like Red Ali or recently saying it's a it's a it's a hell of an invention I think was his uh, exact words what is your take on that now so I gave my son my 21 year old son uh, an allocation of funds to invest in cryptocurrencies and nfts non-fungible mm -hmm. tokens and through that process I've learned an enormous amount about the projects that are occurring on various blockchains. Mm -hmm. Now, what I don't understand and what I don't know is how a popular blockchain, for example, the Ethereum blockchain, which has a lot of smart, you know, smart contract capability, mm -hmm. which I think is very disruptive mm -hmm. and therefore very interesting. Um, I don't know how necessarily the popularity of projects on that chain translate to a rising cryptocurrency price because mm. there's no limit to how many uh, coins can be issued on that particular blockchain. Mm -hmm. right? there's, there's all sorts of talk about um, a change of uh, the way uh, the Ethereum blockchain works. So going from proof of work to proof of stake. Mm -hmm. um, and I get that. But what I still don't, I still don't see the transmission mechanism. I don't see the transmission mechanism for the, the, the greater utility of that blockchain necessarily meaning automatically that the price of the currency goes up. Mm -hmm. So I think where we get to is we get to a world where a lot of legacy businesses are massively disrupted mm -hmm. by the evolution of those projects on the blockchain. I think people can make a lot of money out of investing in some of those projects, particularly in the NFT space and, and out of NFTs comes that whole metaverse 
you know, for example, Adidas uh, dropped a, they dropped a project where for, I think he paid about 2000 Australian dollars in ether. Um, and you end up with, you know, a lifetime supply of free Adidas product that they exclusively give to owners of their NFT. You know, mm. There's utility in that. People will want that. They will pay up for that project. They'll pay up. That'll have some utility and some value, particularly if Adidas are more generous mm -hmm. um, with the stuff that they give away. Um, but does that immediately translate to Ether going up? I'm, I'm not sure. Its popularity goes up and for a time its price goes up. But then popularity waxes and wanes, so the price comes back down again. Yeah, I, I just don't know. But isn't that, I mean, maybe it's a bad analogy that I'm about to give, but isn't it more like, let's say if you're looking, uh, sorry, if you're traveling on a city link, right, the more the cars are on the city link, the more revenue that they will generate, right? That's what essentially Ethereum is. It's essentially a... But who generates the revenue? It's not necessarily the owner of Ethereum coins. It's not the owner of Ether that generates it, right? Mm -hmm. It's the it's it's the network of operators in that. So you need to. So it's the number of the cars that are running on that freeway, essentially, which is sure. the which is the network. That's the network effect that you're talking about of Ethereum itself, right? Similar to Facebook, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So Facebook. What is Facebook? It's a it's a company which uh, which has got billion people on it, or whatever the number is. So. Um, that, so what that. you're saying is, all of those people have to buy Ethereum. And they have to, yes. But, they it's have not, to. but it's not a limited supply. So, so in your analogy, you said there's a whole bunch of cars driving on a road. They all have to pay a fee to use that road. Mm -hmm. But the thing with blockchains is you just build more roads. You issue more roads. You, you not on that particular... Yes, I think I think there's free, not on that particular. You can build another freeway like Solana or uh, Avalanche or whatever it is. Yeah, but that freeway. Yeah, I don't think there's a not getting expanded. I think it becomes harder and harder to mine Bitcoin, right? So the computing power that you need to actually solve the problem that allows you to be to receive another Bitcoin that limits that limits its supply. But with, in the case of Ether, I'm pretty sure there's no limit to the supply. Uh, well, Ether gets burnt as well. But anyways, without digging too much into the technicals of that, uh, so that was Ethereum, right? And then on the other hand is Bitcoin, which is compared to digital gold, which has yeah. got limited supply, which is what you mentioned, 21 million, blah, blah, 19 million already uh, circulating in supply. Uh, how do you see that compared to digital gold? And how do you see that part of the economy evolving? I think I think sorry, it's, it's be... sorry sorry to cut you in, but it's 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 if you look at the some of the companies recently, whether it's Tesla or whether it's MicroStrategy is a big name, uh, um, and uh, some of the other hedge funds, um, they're all putting it on their balance sheet. It's yeah. kind of become a reserve asset. It, it I I'm not in the business of forecasting currencies. I can't tell you what I can't tell you what the Aussie dollar is going to do. You know, when the Aussie dollar was at 105 and the RBA came out and said Australia is uncompetitive, we've got to bring the currency down. I went short Aussie dollars, put all of my cash, all of my family's money into Singapore dollars, US dollars, and British pounds. And that was at a dollar five. And I wound that trade up at about 76 cents. But the rest of the time it's just noise. I can't predict where the currencies are going. Interesting. Uh, same, thing with, same thing with cryptocurrencies. I don't know where they're going to go. I do think, and I, so I just want to differentiate 
and I think this is really important. I think there's a lot of merit in many of the projects that are being built on blockchains. And I'm an investor in those projects. Now, if Ethereum goes up, then I benefit because most of the projects are on the Ethereum blockchain, right? So if Ether goes up, I do, I do okay. But it's not because I'm not investing in them because I'm predicting the currency is rising. Mm -hmm. I'm not forecasting the currency. I'm interested in the projects. And I think some of the projects, for example, distributed casinos where there isn't a house, you know, where you have a casino that operates on a blockchain and the beneficiary, when you lose a, a, a bet, the beneficiaries are everyone else in that um, microclimate or in that environment, you know, that that's interesting to me because a, 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 I can see a, a casino without a house that where one person makes all the money and collects all the fees, I can see that as potentially uh, intriguing to a lot of people and becoming more popular. So investing in those types of projects uh, has some investment merit for a very, very, very small proportion of your portfolio. And that's the other um, caveat. Uh, but that's not predicting the currency. That's not predicting where the currencies are going. I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, it's interesting that you called it a currency because uh, obviously it's cryptocurrency space, but I think two of the projects can be left out and uh, they're not really a currency. Is Bitcoin really a currency? It can be. It can act as a currency. Well, that's what people call it. That's why I'm calling it that. But I'm yeah. Call it uh, what you want. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it's a universal currency that everyone's going to drop the US no, dollar for. No, I think that's going to happen. That's nope. not. Uh, that's just noise, nothing else. Yeah. Um, but is are you saying that the Montgomery Fund is now investing in the cryptocurrency space? As no, well? no, no. Remember right at the start, I said I'd given a small amount of money to my 21-year-old son <laughs> and he's investigating that stuff. It's a family fund. <laughs> we are talking a fraction of a percent right. of our portfolio and mm -hmm. he manages that. Mm -hmm. and he collects a fee for managing that. Fair enough. He gets a, perform <laughs> he gets a performance fee out of it. <laughs> Nice. Uh, uh, I don't have a lot more, Roger, but before I start wrapping it up, John, anything that you... I wanted to I wanted to ask you quickly about real estate, but before I do, I wanted to ask you just a general question about like where asset prices are at the moment. We talked about kind of inflation and interest rates at the beginning, and I, I want to kind of maybe put a bit, a bit of a ribbon on that. And um, uh, one of the interesting things I remember you saying is that... that uh, the yield curve is telling us that there actually probably aren't that many interest rate increases baked into the pie. The yield curve is inverting. And so maybe inflation will be briefer than perhaps many think. I wanted to ask you, is there is there like a disconnect between what we're hearing from the media, perhaps the, the, the central banks and what the asset markets think, the stock markets, the bond markets? The bond markets, the asset markets seem to be saying, Inflation will be brief. Interest rates will go up and then come back down again. But the the rhetoric seems to be about persistent interest rate uh, increases. I wanted to: is there a disconnect there, or well, am reading, I reading too much into it? Well, it's, I mean, you're going to have a lot more people reading your articles. You're going to have a lot more people watching your TV show if you lead with a story that right. strikes fear into the heart of people. Right. So let's talk about inflation. Inflation's terrible. Right. Um. It's really, really important. Um, and my son's just sent me a text message, just popped up on my screen there about one of the projects that he's invested in. It's just, it's, it's just doubled. Um, so he's just 
he's very happy. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, so um, this is the. So let me talk. So that's the that's the media. You know, talking about short term inflation. They're talking about the here and now. The market at the moment, you rightly point out that the bond market is less worried about inflation persisting at the moment, but the Fed is also, the Fed has a really difficult management problem because short-term inflation expectations are very high. Long-term inflation expectations are sanguine at the moment. The danger is if those short-term expectations become long-term expectations. So the Fed does have to put its foot on short-term expectations to make sure they don't become long-term expectations. Because if inflation, long-term inflation expectations go up, businesses change their behavior, consumers change their behavior, and that's bad. Then it becomes a real issue, particularly for equities. But at the moment, the Fed's playing the confidence game really well. It's saying that we've got a plan in place that's actually going to cause create a soft landing. We're going to nip inflation in the bud, but we're going to keep employment up. Uh, and hey, guess what? It's going to be rosy. And we've done it before in the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, and it's been fine. So it'll be fine again. Trust us. That's the message from the Fed. And I'm not joking. He present, uh, Jerome Powell presented a couple of weeks ago at the National Association of Business Economists. That's precisely what he said. He said, we are going to engineer a soft landing. And if you look at the past, we've been able to do it before. We've raised interest rates very, very rapidly in the face of perceived overheating in the economy. And we brought the economy to slow, to heal without causing a recession. So really what he's saying is, you know, hey, we've done it before. Hopefully we do it again. Um, and, and that's the key. So at the moment, inflation expectations are high, but in the short term. As long as those expectations stay high in the short term, we'll probably be okay. Well, the, the last time the yield curve inverted was sort of mid-2019 and they had to reverse course very quickly and start Indeed. to lower the, the uh, lower at the short end. Um, is there any s scenario where you, see, uh, where you see them about turn on, on the interest rate uh, increase schedule i mean is it, if, if we don't well, see yeah, the 10-year go the up moment, it's just a dot plot right it's just based yeah. on where everyone on the fed fomc thinks rates will go but yeah. they're dynamic they're responding to changes as it happens so you know last year they thought inflation was going to be 2.4 percent and it ended up at over seven and a half so um you know they will respond based on the data that they're seeing and if the rate rises have the desired effect earlier than what they expect then they'll probably ease off the future rate rises. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, um, to forecast where rates are going to go. I did a study back in the 1990s um, when I was working at uh, BT, or it might have been Aud Manette, and I remember, I think it was Aud Manette, and what I did is I looked at the yield curves contemporaneously going back 20 years. So I went back, so for example, if I was to do it today, what I'd do is I'd go back to 2002, and I'd say, right, on the, you know, on the 7th of April, 2002, what was the yield curve? What did it look like? So I want to see what the yield curve, I want to see what 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, two, three, five, 10, 20 year, 30 year bonds. What does that yield curve actually look like? Then because I've got the luxury of being able to look backwards, I can say, what did interest rates actually do after 
April the 7th, 2002. And then you can say 20 years later, where were interest rates compared to where the yield curve forecast they were going to be? And I can tell you for every market in the world, over every time frame, the yield curve was wrong. 100% wrong. It got the forecast for where interest rates were, were going to be completely wrong every single time, without exception. And there was no yield curve. The, the Bund yield curve, you know, the German yield curve, the Italian curve, the Spanish curve, the, um, the UK curve, the US curve, the Australian curve, none of them were right. They, no one worked, no one accurately forecast where interest rates were going to be. And the further out the forecast that what the, the forecast was, the more wrong it was. So um, I'm, you know, I, I don't put any credibility in the current yield curve or the current forecast for where interest rates are going to be. And all that matters is that short-term inflation expectations don't creep into long-term expectations. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, Roger. Good question, by the way, John. Um, just starting to wrap this up, being mindful of the time, being mindful of the time. Um, your personal favorite stock pick for the next few years, top three, if you were to give to the listeners. Uh, in Australia, I would say Macquarie Telecom. Mm -hmm. um, I also think if it pulls back the lithium complex, because I think the transition to electric vehicles is a once in a generation opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a massive shortage of the, the, the key ingredients, you know, the nickel, the cobalt, the copper, the lithium that goes into those batteries. And it will disrupt the supply of those cars for some time, which will keep the price elevated. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of companies and they're expensive as we talk today. They seem a little bit expensive and there's probably a bit of the good news, quite a bit of the good news has been forecast into prices. Mm -hmm. If they pulled back, that would be interesting. And then in the United States, you know, I think I mentioned Adobe earlier. You know, I think businesses like that, Microsoft, I think Microsoft's going to do really, really well. I think Apple's going to do really well. I think those businesses, you know, they're, they're fantastic businesses. Um, in, in Australia, coming back to Australia, you know, I, I really, it's unfortunate Unity's got to take over offer because, it, you know, it won't be publicly listed. Um, but if the takeover offer, if the takeover offer is dropped and the share price will drop 40%, if that happens, uh, then that would be one I'd want to still own. That's good. Can I ask, Roger, can I ask you a final question as well? Of course, what, uh, what, what book are you reading at the moment? Oh, um, good question. Hang on a sec. For those who Easter are listening, he's going, going through holidays, a pile of books. Easter holidays are coming up. So I've started, I've started this book. It's called Scale. It's the observation of how scaling works in the world and how can it, it can be applied to business uh, and how it can be applied to um, the economy as well. So you have a natural, you know, it's just interesting that things have a natural size. It's interesting, for example, that you know, a mouse lives two years and a whale lives 100 or an elephant lives 100 and yet they all have about 1.5 billion heartbeats. It's just the mouse's beats a lot faster because of its size. So there's a relationship, a scale. This book isn't answering, you know, it's not a money-making book, but it's exploring the idea that scale 
has something to tell us. And so for business, business is all about scaling, right? So mm -hmm. that's why I'm interested in that book. Um, this book here, The Nature of Technology, that's really important if you're going to be a technology investor, uh, you know, if you're going to invest in tech. It's, it's about the evolution of technology, how new technology and innovation evolves and dies and competes. I think that's really, really powerful. And then we're talking about, we're talking about cryptocurrencies. This, is, this, I think, is really interesting. How money got free. Mm -hmm. Fight for the future of finance. So they're the three books that I'm reading over, East, over the Easter holidays. Uh, and uh, you know, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a summary of them next time I see you. You're going to have your work cut out for you there, Roger. I oh, know this, this is enjoyable. This is the stuff. My wife says, why don't you read fiction? Uh, there's far too much to learn. <laughs> I've got time. How many books do you read in a year, Roger? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I lose count. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I read them very quickly. I read them very fast because there's a lot of fill in a lot of books. You know, you can see when an author, I'm an author, I've written a book. Um, mm. You can see when there's a lot of repeatability, you know, there's a lot of repeating going on. You've said that earlier. So it's easy to skip that paragraph and write, read the next one and just extract the stuff that's important to you. I'm not reading each of these books word by word, line by line. I'm, I'm reading them real, relatively quickly to try and soak up what I think are the important bits. Mm -hmm. um, any wrap up thoughts, Roger, for investors? No, I've really enjoyed this. I'm actually going to um, uh, hope that you'll distribute the, or share the recording so we can put it up on our blog as well. Oh, definitely we will. Uh, thanks for your time, Roger. It's a pleasure, really, guys. Really, really love your work, to be honest. Uh, oh, thanks, Jazz. It's very that, kind of you to say that. And thanks for your questions, Jazz and John. Look, uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon. To the listeners, none of this is financial advice. Please do your own research, play safe, stay safe, and we will catch you guys next week.